Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves, kicking things off for us tonight uh, from a live session they recorded here in 2014. Leaf Rapids with Healing Feeling. 
that one and uh, a bunch of the music tonight is in tribute to the late Gail Comfort, host of Comfort Cafe, programmer here at the station, a friend of mine who passed away on Monday uh, after a battle with cancer. Um, I know she loved Leaf Rapids and I uh, saw a beautiful tribute from Carrie Latimer online uh, upon Gail's passing. A lot of folks in this station and in this community, this music community, are, are reeling this week uh, with her loss. Um, it just kind of happened to line up that uh, a couple of my guests for tonight's show are, are folks that uh, Gail would have liked. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Matt Anderson, a blues artist who is coming to play the club region on March 30th. We've got an interview with him that I recorded. And uh, I spoke to singer-songwriter Tara McLean. Uh, about her new memoir, Song of the Sparrow. Uh, She has an album that accompanies it called Sparrow. And uh, I know, you know, Gail loved songwriters, storytellers. And uh, so we're going to feature some some great music that uh, she might have loved and and from artists she definitely loved. Uh, Lynn Miles is uh, an artist that she played a lot on Comfort Cafe. She has a new record out called Tumbleweedy World. Uh, we're going to play a track called Cold, Cold Moon uh, before we get into my interview with Tara McLean. Uh, and we've got more music to come here on 101.5 UMFM. Show up way too soon. 
All right, well, her memoir is called Song of the Sparrow out through HarperCollins Canada. Songwriter Tara McLean joins me to talk about the memoir. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I, I want to start with something you write about songwriting midway through the book. Uh, when you go to Sony for the first time and you learn about inside out and outside in songwriting. Right. And yes. I'm curious, is this something that applies to this type of writing as well? Like, I mean, it works for songwriting, but like, do you right. have to think about like like is this a memoir because it was an inside out story or Absolutely. are you capable yeah. of being an outside in writer at all like is that something that you think about yeah I didn't really think about it as much with the book because I knew it was going to be such an excavation mm -hmm. that it had to only come from inside fortunately I had the eyes of an incredible master editor uh, Jennifer Lambert from HarperCollins looking at it from the outside in so she could help me understand what you know what storylines I mean as you are, know like in 50 years of being alive there's just so many storylines um, that we could have followed and she was it really helped me to understand what would be interesting mm -hmm. to other people so that's more of an outside in perspective but um, yeah but for me my own personal experience of it was fully just yeah catharsis here we go. Here's my story. And I hope you like it. So yeah. does the editor serve as kind of like like a producer role in, in, in the music? Like, like, is there a one to one comp or is it a vastly different kind of relationship? Um, it was it was an amazing relationship. It wasn't like any I'd ever had before, because when you know, when you're of course, when you're writing songs, they're personal. Of course, you know, for me, obviously, you know, making albums has been, you know, 
emotional and you know it's it's a delicate uh, relationship to have um but with jennifer she just was so encouraging and um and yeah and it was really her job to to help the book just rise to a whole other level and really teach me how to write a book i had no idea so in a way it's kind of like a producer in that way but mostly it's it's like a mentor and someone really holding your hand and and saying like yes this is good yes this is too much you know no we don't need to know all about that you know let's let's skip that you know she's just really it's a really amazing experience songs obviously you have to be much more direct right like like if you're telling a specific story you only have a limited number of verses right like you're not not, not everyone's writing like a nine minute like stairway to heaven type song you got to be much more <laughs> concise having yeah. this kind of freedom is that a uh, weight off of your shoulders in terms of like trying to edit yourself or work within a paucity of words or is it like kind of overwhelming to have an open space and a, a blank page that you're like oh god how do i fill this where do you start yeah oh, well i mean definitely daunting at moments um but i would say it was it was fun because i when i was first delivering chapters they were quite a bit shorter and Finally, my editor said, Tara, you don't need to do that. You don't need to make it all so succinct. Mm. Like, let yourself paint the full picture. Like, go in there. Tell me what's happening. Like, really, I want to know how you felt. I want to know what you saw and smelled. And, you know, like, really take the time. Take the page. Take the, the limitless space that you have. And so all of a sudden, I felt really kind of unbridled <laughs> um, with what I could share. And it was it was a very liberating experience. And then, of course, I still had to then gather it up and, you know, make it more succinct. But that was really her job. She really helped me with that. So, yeah, I, I just I let her rip. <laughs> it was really fun. But your natural inclination might have been for an economy of words. Like that's right. The, yeah. the songwriter in you was kind of like, I've got to get this in a, you know, short amount of time and your editor yeah. drew you out. Was it like much more like detail oriented? Like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And they're like, tell us about the thing and not just say the thing. Yes. Yeah. Paint the picture. I mean, you know, there, there was this one, one example I'll give you was uh, I'm talking about my parents when they were, when we were young and we were living off grid, I was just, you know, very small child and we were living in the backwoods of Prince Edward Island and you know, and I was just sort of, I described a little bit about what the ambiance was like. And then Jennifer said, I want to know more. Like, what, what else do you see? Like, what can you remember? And I started, and all of a sudden, it was like she unlocked something in my brain. She unlocked a memory. And I could see my dad, like, chasing my mom around the cabin and singing her sad songs and trying to make her cry. And, like, uh, and the, the flora and fauna of the forest and just the freedom of being of this little wildling out in the woods. So, you know, I would start to tell a story and I would, you know, give it context. And then Jennifer would just come in and just say the exact right thing. And all of a sudden my memory would flood and then I would just share that. So it was really just a continual unfolding and opening. And also there were some stuff that was really difficult to share, like some really dark stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I just had to be really brave and use the strategies she was teaching me about, you know, I've sung about hard stuff, but have I really told exactly what happened and why? And no. And so I, I had to really, really jump off the precipice um, while I was writing. And it was, it was astonishing to me how, how much I had to say. <laughs> yes. 
I wanted to ask you about the emotional labor in terms of writing about that hard stuff because you you hid some of these things in song or like at least kind of broached them in, in song, but it was not a direct like this happened to me yeah. revelation type thing. That's right. What kind of work did you have to do to steel yourself to like write about this and share this and know that like, you know, you're going to do interviews and talk about this and book tour and read passages from this in public? Yeah, I mean, I have a great therapist. <laughs> Um, and I also have an amazing Zen teacher. I'm a Zen student. And so, you know, one of the things that we, you know, work on is, is, you know, really taking care of what's in front of us and just taking it moment by moment. So I, I knew that when I was about to write this book that I was going to have to be brave, not only for myself, but for my family. So that's, yeah, that's really what I've been, I've been doing is just preparing for, for that and just trying to you know, to get strong. And my understanding, though, is like what I've been through in my life is not uncommon. There are a lot of people who have been through it as well. So um, I'm hoping to connect with those people and and have them feel less alone. So the process then of writing that or like capturing what happened, is that like re-traumatizing at all? Or is that because you've gone through the therapy and you're working on Zen meditation that like you're in the headspace in which you can now address this? I'm absolutely in the headspace that I can address it, 100%. I'm ready for it. And um, and writing it was cathartic. It wasn't re-traumatizing at all. Although I will say um, <clears throat> there are a few situations in the book where while I was writing it, I went into this sort of underground place inside myself and I would shake, like I would physically tremble while I was writing. And I realized that there was something about that that told me that I was really getting to the good stuff. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really good, it was a really good experience to, to go there and to realize that no part of me feels sorry for myself for anything that happened. Um, all, all there is, is trying to understand the human condition and how to rise and evolve in a way that encompasses love uh, and forgiveness uh, for, you know, for all of us, for ourselves and for others. You write in the book about kind of different spells that uh, you you fall under or, or employ and the stone spell yeah. uh, being one of them in terms of like stealing yourself for things. Did you ever like feel like you were go- going towards that spell in revisiting some of these past traumas and, and, and addressing some of the, the harms that had come on you? You know, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the stone spell is one where, yeah, you really have to harden yourself to do difficult things. I believe that the experience of writing this book was quite kind of the opposite. I had to completely melt myself. I had to completely expose myself and be an in like a wide open, like it's like I had to crush the stone to find the jewel in the middle. Mm. In the book, you do talk about, you know, different things you read over, over the course of your life as a, as a little kid, as you know, a teenager living with your, your dad in Victoria. Like I'm curious, did other things you'd read inform kind of how you approached writing this book? Like, do you, do you feel like in some way you were shaped by like what you'd read before and, and structure and things like that? Or did you try to just tell your story like without thinking about other people's work? Well, I think we're probably always unconsciously inspired by, you know, especially with books, with reading. I'd, I've always wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a sci-fi book. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't know that I would write a memoir. Um, but I, you know, lately, I, I, I'm just such a huge fan of uh, Ani DeFranco's memoir. I just thought she was really poetic and forthright and edgy and fearless. 
And so I, I know that that definitely helped to inspire me. Um, I, I have a lot of friends who've written memoir, like Lisa Ray and Jan Arden. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm inspired by their courage as well. Uh, but in terms of writing style, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Anne Michaels, uh, the way that she writes, you know, historical fiction with such a poetic uh, brush. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I, I would say maybe that that kind of I wasn't afraid to to live in, in some metaphor. Mm. Um, and I, I wasn't afraid to like sometimes my copy editor would come back and say things like, so this sentence isn't exactly grammatically correct or it's um, I don't really understand it. And I'm like, that's OK. I'm OK with people not entirely understanding the sentence. I want it to go in. And it's like subconscious level, they're going to get it, but maybe just not in a way that it's, you know, that it's worded. It's, a, it's more of the poetry, because if we made it correct, it would lose, it would lose something magical about it. So, you know, like I, I definitely, I, yeah, I knew what I wanted to, to share as I was sharing it. It was all, I mean, this is the first time, so it's all brand new. Is that a case where, like where it's trying to fully capture your voice because it's your story that like I would say it this way. So that's why I wrote it this way. And maybe, you know, that's not like Canadian press style or something, but like that's that's how it's going to live on the page. That's exactly right. Yes, exactly right. Because and again, when you've never written prose before, you don't know what your voice is. You're learning what your voice is. But by the time, you know, this took two and a half years. So by the time I was at the end of my edits, I was very aware of, of how my voice sounded on the page and uh, and wanted to hold on to that um, and also you know, know when to let it go and when to listen to the, you know, the, the editors. But I, you know, I think the experience and the confidence I have as a songwriter through the years really helped me to know when something landed and when something was right, that I wasn't going to let anyone touch that. <laughs> right. So that, that and nobody and... pressured me. Yeah. It was like, oh yeah, absolutely. This is just suggestions. Gotcha. Yeah. The two and a half year process you mentioned, you mentioned like thinking about writing a sci-fi initially, like that you, that was something that you aspired to not necessarily a memoir. What prompted writing the memoir and like kicked that process off? Oh, it was so incredible. So I wrote a, um, an essay, a short essay one day about being a woman in the music business and body image. And I sent it to my bandmate and friend Davnit Doyle. And she said, please post this. This is so special. And I did, and it went totally viral and the, it, it really hit a chord. Um, and it got published in a couple of magazines and, and a lit agent, Carolyn Ford read it on Davenet's page where she had reshared it and said, and contacted me, we, we got in touch with each other and, and, uh, and said, you should probably write a book. And I, I said, I think I'm right. A memoir years old at this point, let's do that. And, uh, and so I began the process and just wrote a few chapters and she shopped it and Harper Collins snapped it up. Um, and I had an immediate, immediate bond uh, with Jennifer Lambert. And it was just, it flowed beautifully from there. Admittedly, like with what happened in your life, like you could have written memoir years old much earlier, I think, right? Like, like <laughs> with all that happened in your childhood and, and like, like before you even get into the music industry, which is like about halfway through, like yeah, all of that is like, holy crow, this is, we're not even yet at the point where you're, you know, signing with Network and Sony and putting out your first record. Did you think like, I have to tell this entire story or did you ever consider like one story is one thing and the music story is another, or it's just like, this is all one song. 
Yeah, it's all one song. It's all one big song. Um, I, I, fe I feel like not only did I need to tell the story of my childhood, I needed my mother's story and my grandmother's story and my great-grandmother's story because I dedicate this book to my daughters because I want them to know the lineage of strong women they come from mm -hmm. and that no matter what has happened to us and we've all generationally faced different obstacles and different challenges, I don't know, you know, they've got other challenges too, right? So I want them to know where they come from, what we've been through and how we navigate it with grace and with love and with, you know, just fierce, fierce, you know, courage. And, and that's, that's what I wanted to impart to my kids. Speaking of fierce courage, you talk about some of the like artists that were, when you were kind of first getting going that you saw and Holly McNarland is one, Andy DeFranco, who you mentioned her memoir was another that like that era. And obviously Sarah McLaughlin formed Lilith Fair. And that was like a central thing in terms of celebrating diverse women's voices. Do you feel fortunate that the era in which you came up like that was happening? Like, do you think the person you are now wouldn't necessarily have been the person you are now had that not all been kind of fomenting and happening around you? Absolutely. It was it was pivotal. It was it was so essential hopping on Lilith Fair at that time as a young writer and having the examples of all of these women who were so generous with me and such mentors uh, that changed everything and really showed, you know, what Sarah was trying to do with Lil Fair was show that there's room for all of us. We don't, you know, we were always pitted against each other as some kind of, you know, competition because there's only so much room for us, you know, at, at the top or whatever. And, and she just blew that out of the water. It was like, no, 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 we are sisters and we're doing this together. And it absolutely informed me and showed me what was possible in terms of, yeah, mutual support and what can happen, the power of what can happen when we come together. So, yeah, and, and all, the 90s was such a great time musically. I mean, it, it was it was so thrilling to be on the road and in the US and to be on tour with Dido when she was breaking. And, you know, it was just a, a really fun, fun time. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I mean, it's a bummer that, <laughs> that downloading and, you know, the, all that happened, like just as my big album was coming out in the US, it definitely changed my trajectory for sure. But it also maybe I mean clearly it was it was okay because I'm still here still doing it. Right. Watching Holly live, you say you know, kind of opened you up because it was like she was very raw and the, the way that she approached the performance in an audience, she still connected with people and then like once came to her on her own terms. You had to kind of like almost the East Coast nice the Canadian niceness was like pushed back against a little or challenged watching her and, and made you think about kind of like your own kind of performance on stage or your personality. And, and I really thought about when I read that part about the fact that like you said, like there was that Celine Dion picture looming over you at Sony yeah. and that they would like bring a misbehaving young singer to sit beside Celine at some sort of event to kind of like show this is the way you handle yourself. And then you saw some people that were not in the Celine Dion mold. Yeah. And and, yeah, and, and and to be to be sorry. fair, I don't know Celine. I hear that she's actually super badass and mm. like, you know. But she's she's gracious and she's she, you know she's wonderful in public always, you know. And um, so yeah, there there definitely was that um, sort of finishing school for young female artists at the time a little bit um, that you know that I did here at that at that level and. And I wanted to share that because, you know, it definitely, it imprinted, like I'd already been kind of told, you know, always be a good girl. And like, that was really, 
that was really a part of my upbringing in, in my era, like in the early seventies, you know, in the eighties. And, and so, yeah. And, and that night when I was double billed with Holly McNarland and I got to see her, like, she was just, she, she was having none of that. She was having none of it. And, and I, and I realized, and I kept, and I kept watching for it as I went with different artists. Like when I was on, um, Lilith Fair, for example, Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. I mean, you know, she is so edgy and so raw and yet so gracious and loving and kind and supportive, you know? So we can be all of those things. We can be gritty and pretty. And that is what, you know, I, I, I realized there. Yeah, no, Holly taught me, she taught me something that night. It was, it was an important lesson. I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, talked about that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just something I keyed into in terms of like, especially because when you talk, you, you open the book, being dragged up on stage to sing at age nine yeah that like even though that was like a cathartic experience to like hold these people in in thrall with your voice you were going along you didn't initiate that and you were kind of making nice and pleasing someone else to do that and mm. so it, i thought it was curious that like eventually when you saw a performance that was like much more honest about kind of like the conflictual relationship that an artist sometimes has with an audience that's right. That, yeah. That, that that keyed into you and and yeah. you write about kind of essentially like learning a lesson from her. Yeah. And and this is the thing like we all have different relationships with our audiences because you know I look at you know maybe a singer like Michelle McAdory from Crash Vegas or you know you know these singers that are actually really cool on stage like really cool even Stevie Nicks you know she's got this really cool um way about her. And I've just got that uber friendly PEI, I, I'll tell you anything you want to know kind of vibe, but that's just really me. No, but I, I think what happened that night of watching Holly be so fierce and then the women that I've seen since like, oh my God, I saw Sinead O'Connor um, at the Rose Bowl at Lilith Fair, sat right in front of her while she performed Fire in Babylon. And it changed me for, that changed me forever because she was, she just basically, um, exploded in front of me into this creature that was so raw and so wild and so fierce but like otherworldly and I was like oh that's possible it's possible to to completely um like let all of your inhibitions go and and all of your ideas even of who you are and just get fiercely lost in the music and I thought oh god like I can't believe I have these examples all around me. And so my whole life, every time I get up on stage and my work is like, how do I serve the music and the audience and, and my own self-liberation? How do I just like, how do I open up the deepest I can? And that's what I did with the book. I was like, all right, you want in? It's not gonna be pretty. It's not gonna be nice all the time. And in fact, you're gonna probably have to put the book down and cry <laughs> and that's okay. I'm not hiding anything anymore. I'm not, you know, sitting at the altar of the good little girl at all. And if you want to know what that looks like, and if we can inspire other young women to not take on that role and wear that mask, like take that off and be who they really are, I think we're gonna have an incredible generation of leaders beneath us. And, um, you know, and women who are just saying no more, no more, no more playing nice. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm, and I'm real and I'm fierce. 
Right. Now, you've had those experiences with watching live performances. Were there songs that had kind of that impact in terms of like, oh, I didn't know you could do this, challenged you as, as a listener or as a songwriter in the, in the same way that, you know, like a Sinead O'Connor performance or a Holly performance does? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, in different ways, like I think Comfortably Numb from Pink Floyd, the first time I heard that song, just really ripped me open. Um, Dead Can Dance. Um, there's a song that Lisa Gerard is my favorite living singer. Yeah, you have a she great talks. passage about watching her and just like being like enthralled. Right. Oh, yeah, because she talks about singing not as performing. It's about opening up a wound and bleeding music. <laughs> so like she's not beating around the bush about what her experience is up there. And so there's a song called Sun Vian that she that she opens. <laughs> and um, and that every time I listen to it, I feel like I'm I, I'm I go trans-dimensional or something like it cha- it changes me and then yeah I mean there's just there's so much music that that does that for me um you know even back listening to Tori Amos Me and a Gun like that that song was a you know a, a song she does a cappella about a, a about a sexual assault um that is yeah probably one of the most chilling pieces of music in the world <laughs> like there's just so there's so much good stuff out there in terms of like Going back into your own history and writing this, were there any like things that either you'd forgotten about or like surprised you in some way now, like with the benefit of hindsight that you you were kind of reconsidering? You mean like as a regret? Like no, not as I, I'm not I'm not asking about regrets. It's just like like sometimes you know how like we kind of forget episodes in our lives, yeah, or backburner them somehow, and then it's like oh wait, that's on the stove. What like I didn't I didn't remember yeah. that. <laughs> Oh, that happened a lot. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you go back and open a memory and then using those strategies that Jennifer Lambert at HarperCollins was teaching me to to really go into the moment, it was almost shamanic. Like you almost like went there for real. And there were times when I would read back what I'd written and I'd written it in the present tense, not in the past tense, because I was so there. And and I had to, I'd have to go back and change the tense and be like, oh, right. Okay. I'm ba- I've gotten back in my time machine. I've come to the present moment. I have to now write it like that. And while I was there, I would see things that I'd forgotten. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Even songs, lyrics, poems. Um, yeah. And, and memories like, you know, there's one, one memory and, and, the, and a lot of these memories would, in, would make me go, oh, that's why I am the way I am like being left in a car. Um, in the winter when it was really, really cold. And I can't stand being cold. Like when I'm cold, I feel like I might die. Like I actually can't stand being cold. I don't have a whole lot of quirks, <laughs> but that's one of them. Like I, I just don't like being cold. And um, and as I was writing it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Why? Because I was that was a dangerous moment for me as a little kid. I didn't know if I was going to freeze to death or not. And and it's just so there's like little moments like that that, that make me realize, yeah, why I'm such a why I am who I am. <laughs> We're all the sums of our parts. Yeah, no, absolutely. Indeed, indeed. You have a, an album coming out to accompany the, the memoir. Was that happenstance? Uh, was that in, like intentional? Like how did the decision to have like, like a partner piece come out and how did you kind of make that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, while I was writing the book, um, new music was coming out of me just because I was open. Um, and... I also realized how great it would be. And I, and I had a marketing manager at the time who sort of planted the seed, uh, Sherry Sinclair. She's like, this would be great to have a one-stop shop where people could hear all the music that you're writing about. Because I, I do, as you know, write about 
um, songs that were very pivotal to me, whether they opened a door or changed me in some way, I wanted to share those. So this way people can come, they can get the soundtrack. It's like a soundtrack to a movie, really. And they can get the soundtrack and then hopefully they will then delve into, um, you know, the deeper catalog. The, and the process that led to those songs essentially, or like kind of the, yeah. the, the backstories yeah, for those songs. I, it's intimate. It's just like a bit more intimate with the music. Yeah. So usually, because I, I do interview a lot of musical artists, I get them to pick a song. Can I get you to pick a song that we can put on the end of this interview from the album? Like, is there one song in particular oh, that you want to give me an anecdote about or, uh, you know, story behind? Okay, let's see. How about, I'm going to say Lay Here in the Dark. Um, Lay Here in the Dark is going to be an up and coming single. Um, so you're going <laughs> to, you're going to get ahead of it. Um, but it's my favorite song from the album. That's why I want to share it. And it's because it has one of my favorite lyrics in it. I wrote it right after. So right before I got my book deal, I got a divorce. My husband of 16 years and we are still very close. It's a whole amicable situation. It was just a growing apart scenario, but even the most loving breakups are very painful. And there was just one night where I was like, oh man, I am, I am feeling the loneliness of the world. It was like, I don't know, <laughs> May, 2020. <laughs> um, I was feeling so much and I didn't, I actually kind of was scared. I was scared of the dark and I reached for my guitar and this song came out and it's kind of an ode to love, to this reservoir of love that I know we have access to. And I, I wrote one of my favorite lines in it that I've ever written and that line is, um, and it's just really simple, uh, but it means so much to me because it told me that I was evolving as a person. And it was like, teach me how to bow when I am breaking. So teach me how to be grateful for the pain right while it's happening. You know, like right as it's coming at me, like, don't be afraid, be, be grateful for just the chance to be alive and feeling and experiencing these things, even though they're uncomfortable, even though they're grueling at times, you know, I just, teach me love, teach me how to teach me how to be grateful for my life, no matter what, no matter the circumstances. And that was like a breakthrough moment for me as a person. And so I love that it's in the song. So sounds like you're tapping into that Zen practice you were talking about as well. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's it, right? <laughs> well, the book is Song of the Sparrow. It's out through HarperCollins Press. Uh, Tara, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for all the great questions. I'm gonna hold on to the edge for 
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, Friday edition of Free Range Radio. Right before the break from her album Sparrow, which accompanies the memoir Song of the Sparrow, Tara McLean would lay here in the dark. Uh, my thanks to Tara for uh, taking some time to talk about that book and about the record as well. Uh, now, as I mentioned to start this show off uh, earlier this week, Gail Comfort, host of Comfort Cafe, heard on Sunday evenings here on UMFM, passed away 
Uh, and so this show is in part in tribute to her, the music I'm playing. Uh, and it just so happened to line up that the guests are, uh, are kind of Comfort Cafe-esque. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Matt Anderson uh, in a few minutes here uh, about his new record, The Big Bottle of Joy, and about coming to town playing the Club Regent on March 30th. I recorded it uh, earlier this week. Uh, but before we get to that, a couple artists I know that Gail loved. Uh, William Prince has a new record coming out called Stand in the Joy. Released a single last week, I guess, called Easier and Harder. And then uh, Del Barber has a new one called Almanac. We're going to hear a track called Maria. Uh, keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. Situation, manifestation, representation of what we like in someone who might go the distance, be blowing in the wind with beginning and the end, over and over again. The truth about love, it don't come all at once, it gets easier and harder all the time. And if you don't give up, when pushing comes to shove, it gets easier and harder all the time. It gets easier and harder all the time. Well, the house that you built will stand for much longer. Leave your ego outside Makes the foundation stronger If you learn to compromise It'll spare you some hell Honey, we just might make it In spite of ourselves Well, the truth about love It don't come all at once It gets easier and harder all the time If you don't give up When pushing comes to shove it gets easier and harder all the time yeah the truth about love it don't come all at once it gets easier and harder all the time and if you don't give up when pushing comes to shove it gets easier and harder all the time it gets easier and harder all cups of coffee it's days like these that remind me why we fell in love she says darling I disagree 
Our love is a four-wheel drive Chevrolet We didn't fall, we climbed up In a red, drove away So many people crying About their fates So many of them won't do A goddamn thing So me and you, Maria Me and you, Maria me and you, Maria. It was last year in the winter. You're always looking at your shoes. Even the clerk at the grocery store could see that she would carry Well, no stranger to Winnipeg stages back to play the club Regent March 30th. Matt Anderson, and he's bringing his new record, and he joins me on the line. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me. So uh, I, I got to ask in terms of how you conceive of a record. Like, do you think of it as like a batch of songs that you've got ready? Do you put some thought into like, are these like kind of narratively similar? What Like, how do you approach making a record and what, what a conception of a record is? Uh, this one was a little different this time. Uh, this is the first time I've gone into a record knowing exactly who the musicians were going to be. You know, usually it's uh, that's an afterthought. You know, the songs are there. Then you kind of start, like you said, you kind of compile all the songs you have. But this one kind of all happened together. You know, some of the people who were on the record are actually you know, wrote some of the songs with. So it was uh, a little different approach this time. But I really dug being able to know exactly what I was going in the studio with. And, you know, as far as, you know, tying all the songs together, that just kind of naturally happens. I think when you're writing songs, in a certain period of time, your ideas kind of start to bleed into each other a little bit. So like everything that's swirling around in your mind kind of gets put into like one sort of sonic stew because it's like what you're focused on at that point as, as a person? Yeah, I, I would say for sure, especially with the writing, you know, it's uh, that's why I like to write with other people, you know, do the collaborative thing mostly to keep myself from ripping off my own ideas over and over again. You know, you can kind of start to steal from yourself if you do too much. I find I can anyway. I start to, you know, repeat myself a little bit. Are you able to identify that or is it someone else kind of coaxing you saying, hey, like Matt, you're, you're kind of plumbing the same depths here? Uh, it's, usually I catch it myself. You know, mm -hmm. I try to be aware of that. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely, especially when you start writing with other people, you start to find yourself saying things like, okay, well, I did this in the last song I wrote, so I don't want to use that line again or I don't want to use that kind of a bridge or whatever. You know, you kind of start, just kind of police yourself a little bit on it. Right. So then in terms of writing with other people, do you approach each 
collaboration as its own thing or like do do you try to like normalize or or like regulate kind of how how you write with someone else or or is it just like because this person's different this process is different yeah i try not to um steer too much what's going to go on when you're when you're working on something it's i find that way you're if you have limitations or you set parameters you're you, you could easily be cutting off something else that you wouldn't want to miss you know so I, I try to keep myself as open to everything that's coming in so every song's treated like its own its own little project really right uh, so like are you do you start kind of like giving each other lines or do you say like kind of i want this song to be about x or y or, or like how do you suss that out uh earlier on i guess when i'm getting ready for a record i have lots of ideas and uh, you kind of go into a, a session sometimes i'll pick a certain person to write a certain song with because I know that's that's one of their strengths, you know, and I, I definitely, you know, when I work with people, I want to pick on their strengths and use them for that, really, I guess, you know, you want to uh, lean on what they're best at. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I have an idea for a love song, I'll go to Donovan Woods, you know, that's always been where we've landed the best. And, um, you know, I've got another guy right with Andy Tachansky and Andy's great for those kind of like, you know, relationship songs too, and making them sound, you know, really gorgeous. And just the way he paints pictures with what he does, it's, uh, you know, I, I kind of direct that sometimes, but then as the writings go on for an album, I've run out of ideas. So you kind of start to from scratch when you get with some people. And uh, I find when I'm writing this album, I guess especially, I knew everybody really well that I wrote with. So it was really easy to find a, part, a point to start writing from because there was no, there was no awkwardness. You could be really honest right up front what you wanted to say. And uh, it's, um, yeah, I guess it's different every time, but this time it, it just felt like, it, you know, it was, I was working with friends, so everything was really comfortable. So you mentioned writing love songs with Donovan because that's mm -hmm. what he taps into is miss missing you. Cause I did, I didn't get the, like I got the album, but I didn't get like all the like liner notes and stuff. Is that right. one that you wrote together? No, that one I wrote with Tara Spencer who okay. uh, she also wrote Aurora that's on the album. Uh, Tara's fantastic. You know, we wrote a song together on, on my last album, the solo project. Uh, the one I wrote with Donovan is shoes. The last song on the album. Okay. Just cause the uh, miss missing you is a very much a like ballad of a love song too. And so I just, seem to tap into a, a similar vibe that uh, that a Donovan Woods song uh, would have. Yeah. It's also obviously like a COVID song. Um, Absolutely. That came from, uh, I was on a songwriter circle with Alan Doyle and Bruce Guthrow uh, through the pandemic. He did like these online kind of things. And the conversation went to what you miss about being on the road. You miss all the horrible things, but you also, there's a feeling of coming back home and that's almost, that's, I know it's a bit of a drug really you know for for people who travel a lot that feeling when you get back home i think it's not something everybody gets to experience if you're home every day you don't know what it's like to miss home and that's what that song was miss missing you was like i miss the part of going away and coming back home to you yeah it's a it's a sentiment i don't think i'd ever heard from like a touring musician in song before obviously like you know you hear about it you know either in an interview or off air just kind of like oh man that going home after a long stretch on the road feels great but i don't think i'm I've heard a song that expresses that kind of like it, just satisfaction, let's say. Yeah, and it, it's 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 a weird one to explain to people because if you haven't experienced it, it's 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 a hard one to grasp. I think that you you know you you miss the feeling of coming home. I think if you don't know what how good feeling coming home can be, maybe it's hard for people to latch onto that idea. Do, do you ever worry about like you know so the experiences you're writing about in your your own life? Are maybe not the experiences a, a listener has and whether people will resonate with that like like this notion that the very particular is universal um 
Yeah, I've I, there's just too much going on in the world for anything I think any one person's experience for somebody else not to be able to, whether they've experienced the same thing, at least find something they can connect to into it. And uh, yeah, I, I've I've I used to worry about that when I would write. You know, if people are going to actually understand what's uh, exactly what you're saying, but I know there's songs that I've listened to that I'm not getting the same point the writer meant. But that's not really what the music is for. You know, if if you you take what you get out of it. Right, as a, as a songwriter, I guess you have to be willing to just like put it out into the world, and then however someone interpreted it, that's that's on them. That's not that's not your role. Yeah, I I definitely think that's part of it. Unless you have something you really directly want to say to people, you know, let people take it how they will, and um, that's kind of one of my favorite things about writing as well. You know, there's there's songs I've written that felt very personal to me that I felt like okay, this is this is for me. This is my therapy, and somebody else can turn it into theirs. I, th- I think that's pretty pretty amazing. One that feels like very pointed though is "What's on My Mind." Mm-hmm. Uh, how did like? Do, can you recall how that song came about and like the the genesis? Was there a specific inciting incident? You know, I mean, it feels uh, very kind of like responding to the world outside. It was definitely just at at that time. I wrote that with Chris Kirby and Corey Tetford, who also play on the album, and we're all fairly like minded as we 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 try to do as much good as we can and, and be good to people, and we're just really sick of you know people tearing each other apart and and and. Uh, and that's what that song is. It's a shout out to just uh, let people know that you, you can be good to each other, not have to put each other down and, you know, focus on making positive things happen. And that's what that was. And, the, and it felt like a lot of that energy was coming from the negative stuff was coming from online where people had no consequences. You know, you could say what you want to say and you know, you have to look a person in the face that you're putting down. And uh, that's what the first line of that song, you know, give me something real to write on. It's like, I want to write this down on pen and paper so people know it's serious. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, this is an instance where you you rarely go into the studio kind of like knowing who's going to play on the record and, and sussing that out afterward, but having the experience of like knowing the players before you, you, you know, hit the studio. How does that change kind of how you write a song, like like what, what a song structure is or what, what you're doing within a song? Like how, how does that change things? Um, often when I write, I'm writing for my solo show. Or at least for the songs to work as a solo show, you know, for me to take those songs, strip away the band, and have myself and the guitar. Uh, this album, we didn't. I didn't think of that at all. You know, I focused everything. It was it was really freeing, I guess, to be able to just know exactly who's going to be on the album, knowing what they can do musically, knowing what they do creatively, and you know, it's it's fun to write something and know what the drummer Jeff is going to do. I can hear, I played with him enough over the last few years, 20 years or so really, that I know what he's going to bring to the table and the players and the singers. It's, it's, uh, I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess. It's like if you're painting a picture, it's like it's, you, you have a more firm idea of what the end product's going to be because you, you, know, you have all your colors there. And sometimes when you write, the colors don't show up until after. Yeah, I suppose like if you're, if you're writing a song at its core, it's like you and, you and a guitar, you have a limited palette i guess maybe if you're like to keep it on the on this painting analogy whereas you know you have like a full like you know 64 color crayon box when you're going in with this band i guess if i was going to stick with that i made that analogy up on the spot so i know i know now we're like really going down a rabbit hole here but um i guess if i would compare it when you're writing solo and then taking that song to a, a producer for the most part if it was a painting you haven't put the color in it yet you don't know what the color is going to have to work with. You don't know if it's going to be dark, if it's going to be bright, you know, and, and there's all that is left as an afterthought. Whereas going in the album, knowing this is like I had the full palette there in front of me and I could choose exactly what I wanted to put in and knew how it was going to turn out. You know, of course, you leave yourself open to things to change, but it was it was just amazing to go in and have have that kind of 
foresight, I guess, into what the end product could be. So are you hearing the band in your head as you're writing these songs, or are you asking the band, like, hey, what do you hear? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, like I said, knowing the players, I, I knew what I had in my head when we were writing things. I knew what the kind of groove I had in my head. But when we get in the studio, um, I don't play the songs for people until we get in there. Nobody's heard the music until we're in the studio on the floor together. Uh, we did the whole whole album live off the floor, so there was no like pre-production, really. I kind of had in my head, and then... I play them the songs and let them react. You know, I've I've got some pretty fantastic musicians and friends, you know, that played on this album and to not let them do what they do before I start telling them what to do, I think could could squash some real creative moments. So pretty much I let people do what they want and then if I don't dig it, then we have a talk about it. But other than that, um, usually people land, you know, in my head where I expected them to. Recording live off the floor, was that a monetary decision, a time decision or an artistic no, decision? Art- absolutely artistic. Um, I love the vibe of musicians playing off each other. I love the spontaneity that comes out of it. You know, when music is reactive, I think that's when it's best. You know, there's so many people love capturing moments when you see a band on stage and you know what's happening in the moment. And I think that's what I tried to capture with, with this band. You know, that's why I didn't let them hear the songs first. Uh, we just get in, I'd play them a song on the acoustic or whatever. And then uh, everybody just start to bring in their ideas. We jam for about half an hour. And then we start to push the record button when things came together. So there's some thought to like replicability so that like, this is what going to see you at the club regent will sound like absolutely i mean it's it's uh and as what's beautiful about a tour is like we're all excited about the fifth and sixth shows because that's when things start to kind of morph you get comfortable and then by the end of the tour you're playing completely different not completely different songs of course but you know there's they kind of start to have their own life on the road as well and it's it's always fun to see where that starts initially in the studio where it ends up on the road that that like morphing of songs over the time of a tour is that a freeing thing artistically to like see where the the like initial idea takes you or is it like daunting to think like this this song wasn't necessarily like fully baked initially and we've we've really put it in the oven on this tour uh no i feel like it's uh it's just a natural way of things especially how i like to have my stage it's it's pretty organic you know even songs we play night after night you know i'm shouting out changes as we go along you know dynamic changes or somebody else take a solo here and and the players I, th- I have are really great for that. Everybody has big ears. Everybody's listening. So things organically just start to pop out. You know, a ba- the bass player will do something different that he's never done before. Ends up being really cool. And that's just where it goes from there. But it, I don't feel like it's uh, it doesn't really change the song. But it's just, it's honestly it's something that I don't own anybody from the outside. Is everyone to catch? It's more for us. <laughs> really, it feels like sometimes it's just, you know, it's just little things that we're going to catch and maybe make the song different. But I'm not going to say better. I would just say different. So the the Sonics on the record is that just a product of the band and kind of what what came out of that that live situation or like did anything you were listening to filter in? I know that s- some artists I've talked to kind of during the like interregnum of you know not touring listened to things they hadn't listened before or like revisited albums. W- mm-hmm. Was that a factor? Um, out of the projects I'd done before, I knew I definitely want to do this one live off the floor. Um, I like the idea, like I said, of people just reacting to what's going on. But there's also something when you get that sound of all the instruments in the same room at the same time. You know, you get the guitar sound coming through the, the drum mics. And, you know, I was sitting four feet from the drummer. So everything had to be happening in that moment and captured it live. You know, there wasn't a chance to go back and, and fix things because it just you know, the bleed was just there. Right. You know, you could hear my vocals on the drum track. So if I screwed up my vocals, it was going to be everywhere kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, yeah, a lot of that is just uh, a lot of the records I listen to. That's the stuff I love, you know, um, 
one I always go back to is Rod Stewart's Every Picture Tells a Story. I mean, it's such a great record. There's you know little warts all over it. You know, a couple tunes, the bass is, is, is tuned flat, but it's still, it's, it's just the vibe is there. And then I guess uh, when I was getting ready to go and record this, and also when I was making my studio at home, uh, a buddy of mine, Steve Dawson, producer, you know, I'd had all these questions, you know, what should I do? What should I do for, should I get isolation boost and all this kind of stuff? He kept sending me this picture of the band recording Big Pink. And it was just a bunch of mattresses and crates and, and stuff all over the room. And it's like, well, that's, it comes down to what's playing and not, 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 not so much of the, the how it's recorded. But, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's a lot more like the, art, the artistic stuff has to be there first or there's no point in the technical stuff even being there. Yeah, I often think of there's a, a story about Ian and Sylvia making one of their records where there was one mic hanging in the middle of the room and Ian and Sylvia kind of on either side and then behind them, you know, basically like almost like a circle around them is, right. is the band. And it's just like the the person at the back plays loud enough that they get picked up, and obviously the voice <laughs> yeah. is kind of central. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, they they accomplish great things with that one mic. And it's uh, I think it's a really natural way things. Uh, I love the vibe of albums when you can sit and listen to a record and feel like you're sitting in the room with musicians. You know, sometimes it can, you know, that comes with stylistically different different productions maybe don't work like that. But I love that style of an album or production that it feels like you're just sitting in the room and you know they got the drummer on one side and the guitar player on the other side and it's all just melds together. For sure. Well, folks can sit in the room at the club region on the 30th. Uh, before I let you go, Matt, I want to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking that one or an anecdote about it, I'd love to hear that. Ah, uh, let's do... I want to do what's on my mind. That's um, I love the girls off the top of this. You know, they just uh, they just kill it. I mean, the Rini, Micah, and Haley, um, just absolutely monstrous singers. And I kind of had in my head when we were doing the intro for this song, um, Thirty Eight Specials. Um, oh, I can't think of the song now. But I just the, the 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 hit of those vocals right off the top and the band coming. In, I just I just love that vibe, and I think that's. Uh, I can't wait to play that one live for people. Perfect. Well, Matt, thanks very much for taking some time and uh, safe travels on the road. Cheers. Thank you very much. Can I tell you what's on my mind? 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 It's up to you and me Let me tell you 
Oh, how I still love you 
Oh, I... 
East Coaster Sherry Ryan with a single called Roll It Out. Now that's one that uh, I thought Gail might have liked. I don't think she ever heard Sherry Ryan. I certainly looked at her playlist and she'd never played any Sherry Ryan. Uh, before that, uh, another uh, Newfoundlander, Nico Paolo with Time, one of the early singles off of her forthcoming self-titled record. Uh, we heard El Sapi with her version of Heart of Glass and uh, Sweden's Land of Trees with a new single called Giving You My Notice. And we started that whole set off with Matt Anderson's What's On My Mind, his selection from the Big Bottle of Joy, the album that he'll be playing at the Club Region on March 30th. Um, before we go, I just want to uh, close with a, a single that I'm, I'm dedicating to my parents. This was their, uh, their wedding song. Uh, it is their anniversary today on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, also significantly uh, very often played uh, when someone passes. So uh, in, in memory of Gail Comfort and uh, in honor of my parents' anniversary, this is Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. And 
Sail on, silver girl. Sail on.